The following is a message by Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. So, um, I'd like to have you think with me this morning on an amazing section of Scripture and one particular verse within it on which I shall focus most of my attention. The pericope is 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 17. I won't read it because I'm going to be citing some of the verses within it anyway, and I think you'll see the structure of it by doing it that way instead of taking the time to read the whole thing. The central verse is, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay the foundation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, through the inspiration of the Spirit and the mediation of the Son, we bow before you to call upon you to speak through your word to us today. We thank you for it. Without it, we know precious little. So may your word instruct us and build us up in our most holy faith. For the glory and the name being uplifted of our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, the text is... Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. I thought, triumphantly, I only had three points until I kept digging and discovered I had a few more. Anyway, I have three major points. Um, I have an introduction, and then three major points and a few at the end. The introduction goes like this. We are considering this text at a crucial moment in our cultural and ecclesiastical history where there is a wide-scale, widespread rejection of the notion of foundation, known as anti-foundationalism. I'm sure you've all studied that. And I've been trying to keep up to date with that. Um, It can get pretty strange. There was a conference organized by the sort of left emergent movement this summer entitled Reclaiming Paul. And one of the workshop leaders, Daniel 2LZE Schroyer, pastor of Journey Church in Dallas, she said, I cannot say exactly what we believe, except that experience is a higher authority than Scripture. I do not believe the Bible is the Word of God, I believe Jesus is. Scripture has no hierarchy over other books. It is inspired and inspiring the way a quantum physics book is. Another speaker at this conference said, if the Bible is at its core a narrative which we continue to play out, then it is important that we learn to think differently about what the Bible is in our narrative moment. When you penetrate through those statements, you 
come to realize that what's being really said is that we make up our own narrative and lay our own admittedly subjective foundation based on changing intuition about the notion of love and non-rational mystical experience. But have we really reclaimed Paul, <laughs> is what I would ask. It's interesting that this movement, and I see it now, infiltrating many unsuspecting churches in evangelicalism under the guise of philosophical integrity and missional sensitivity is using postmodern anti-foundationalism to create another gospel. They argue that all knowledge, including the Bible, is interpreted knowledge, so there can be no effective even scriptural foundation. Everything is interpretation. This is sometimes called the hermeneutic of humility. But in actual fact, they are, I believe, repeating the error of autonomous man, as Van Til describes it, asking the wrong epistemological question, how do we know, rather than the first epistemological question, which is, what do we know? It's very interesting when you hear these people talk, they make one true statement. All truth is interpreted, except, of course, that one. That, to me, suggests a chink in the armor of autonomous man because you have to presuppose that there is truth in the universe to allow yourself to open your mouth to say anything. In other words, that God created a rational universe that allows us to make true statements. I want to, this has been a long introduction. I, <laughs> Yeah, this is just an introduction. I would like to locate what Paul says about laying a foundation, though, within that context. Yeah, I thought I had three points. The first one is, by the grace of God. The second, I. And the third, laid a foundation. They're the basic three. So the first one, by the grace of God. Uh, Paul writes to a church that is immature, full of egotism, he says in verse 3, For you are still of the flesh, for a while there is jealousy and strife among you. You are not of the flesh and behaving, you are of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. For one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Paul is at pains to show that no person can claim innate or inherent rights to authority. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom we believe, as the Lord assigned to each. And it goes on just diminishing the importance of individuals. All, you see, is of grace, including roles of leadership within the church. And that's why that key phrase of 310 is so important, beginning as it does, according to the grace that was given to me. This is a commonplace in Paul's writings when he talks about his own ministry. I don't have enough time to go through them. Romans 1, 5, 12, 3, 15, 5, and so many others where he places his ministry 
within the context of grace. But note, Paul is not calling for a sort of pluralistic missional conversation of humility between theologians like Cephas or Paulus himself and Christ. He wants them to understand and accept the nature of his office as foundation layer. In the light of the notion of God's grace and ultimate authority. So, this is uh, essential to understanding the rest of what Paul says. Second point is the pronoun me and the pronoun within the verb I. The grace given to me, I laid a foundation. This focuses us on who is speaking and how and why. Why should the Corinthians accept Paul in his office of spiritual authority over them? Why should they build on this foundation? Because he was the first missionary to Corinth? Because he was a nice guy? Well, Paul gives the church and us a certain number of serious clues as to why we should listen to him. Here are a few of the hints already in this book. He says he's called to be an apostle of Christ. His speech is in the demonstration of the Spirit. He's a steward of the mysteries of God. God has revealed these things to us. Often Paul, when he says us, means me. And at the end of the book, he says, I tell you a mystery. It's something that you couldn't know about a future event. This is not just somebody's opinion. So that's the first thing, sort of hints going along. The second thing is implicit to this particular text, which is an appeal to a prophetic calling. I believe that Paul lays claim to the calling to be a prophet to the nations. In the phrases that we've seen, I'm not sure we read them, I planted, I laid a foundation. Do you know that Jeremiah in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, says this. Before I formed you in the womb, well, I guess it's the Lord saying to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Uh, that's what Paul says in Galatians 1.15, when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I like to say pagans. Uh, but there's something else in Jeremiah's call. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And of course, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.8 says, For if I boast a little too much of our, our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Same verbs, actually. So, Paul is really laying claim to a call to be the eschatological prophet to the nations and calls himself, actually, in Romans 11.13, apostle to the Gentiles which is recognized by the Jewish church. 
When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. You see, this is not just a, a theologian throwing out some ideas. Here's a man who knows that he has been appointed by a special act of God. He also claims, actually, the role of God in using an interesting phrase, to bring to light. The Lord, in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, says Paul, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. But Paul makes the same claim to be able to bring to light these things hidden in darkness. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light the same phrase. For everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? What Paul is claiming is that he is a divinely appointed prophet of God and that what he brings is an essential element of the nature of the new covenant. And it's given by, or the new creation, and it's given by the creator of the first creation. That's the source of the new creation mystery, the God who created all things. Thus you have, you see, in Paul, this sense of the organic unity between God the creator and God the redeemer. The mystery of Christ comes from God the creator. And so I come to my third point, which may not be my last. Uh, Paul says, I laid a foundation. What is he saying when he claims this particular role? Like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. When you study this, it's very interesting to see the origin of such a claim. For the Bible associates foundation laying actually with God's act of creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For he has founded it, the same verb, temelio, as Paul uses, for he has founded it of old upon the seas. Psalm 102.25 says, of old you laid the foundations of the earth. Same question is asked to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In other words, as Van Til rightly says, what we begin with is a reality that precedes us. And Job is made to realize that, is he not? You close your mouth and listen to someone who can speak because God has created an objective real world, not the result of our hermeneutical questions. So God lays the foundation of a rational, comprehensible world. And on this basis, human beings can function. But if there's a movement in, in Scripture from the laying of the foundation of creation to the founding of God's people, the Old Testament does it. The Lord himself underlines this transition from creation founding to temple and people founding as these two complementary acts of God, then both of creation and of redemption. Just... Uh, one or two quick examples, Psalm 78, 69, he built his sanctuary in Jerusalem like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded. So there's a comparison between the founding of Jerusalem and the founding of the heavens and the earth. 
Isaiah 51, 16 says, I plant the heavens, I lay the foundation. See that planting and laying foundation? And I lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, you are my people. So again, the comparison of these two acts. At Qumran, which is a community that existed just prior to the New Testament, the community is called an everlasting planting and a foundation of truth. Same terms. So, if you come to Paul's use of the term, you see, we're talking about the eschatological founding of the final temple. And of course, the context is very much to do with the temple of God. You remember in verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? And so Paul's uh, subject really is the founding of the final temptation. And such uh, emphasis implies the same connection, you see, between creation and new creation. In his foundation laying, Paul claims a function of a wise master builder, actually recalling the comparable role of Christ as the creator. He says of Christ in this epistle, 8.6, one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things are. And of course that goes back to Proverbs. This is the description I believe of Christ in Proverbs 8.27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, I was there, this is verse 30, beside him like a master workman. Isn't that interesting? It's difficult to make the linguistic connection, but the fundamental notion is exactly the same. Paul, as a wise master builder foundation layer, is standing now in the place of Christ as Christ's apostle, functioning as his mouthpiece. Comparable also, oddly, to Moses, who is an architect of the original temple, for it says that Moses built the temple according to the pattern that the Lord had shown him on the mountain. So we got some temple building here uh, compared to the uh, building of the creation. Let me draw these ideas to a close. In scripture, the objectivity of creation is invoked to establish the equally objective foundation of redemption. Just as creation is real, not a hermeneutical interpretation of our experience, so is the new creation. This too is an objective act of God. Equipped with this kind of divine authority, I almost said deuteromosaic authority, it is little wonder that the foundation Paul lays is an eternal foundation. The apostles are associated with that ultimate temple as the 12 foundations of that heavenly Jerusalem. Thus, this foundation laying is not an act to be hermeneutically or theologically repeated in the church like the original creation and Christ's coming and work. It is a once for all divine act, a body of revelation, a foundation once delivered to the saints that persists to eternity. 
You see it in the verb itself, etheka, which is a perfect tense. And you all know that the perfect means it stands and remains founded. There is a little point I have to make, though, the final part of the verse, which ruins my tripartite form, uh, is a sort of exhortation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. This indeed is a solemn warning. The same present imperative, blepeto, is repeated in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, that anyone who thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. There is a judgment day coming for the work of building on this foundation. And the criterion to be used about the building process is surely this, that the work of building has to mesh with the apostolic foundation already built, or the building of this temple will be a false foundation. The present liberty of so-called evangelicals is thus stunning. Tony Campolo says Christianity needs to return, return to the prime documents, but these are the red-letter statements in the Gospels. No mention of this foundation that Paul mentions. Brian McLaren says the same thing in his Everything Must Change. It takes a few slices out of the Gospels to produce a socio-economic notion of justice, and that becomes the message of the church today in the 21st century. And never once mentions the foundation that Paul lays in this text. These people believe they are attractive because they're in touch with the culture, having adopted the culture's norms, and certainly thus are liked by the culture. But we have to take the warning very seriously. And you also find it actually in Jeremiah, who was called to plant and to build, who says of the false prophets of his day, do not trust in these deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. Do not trust in that. Again, the temple is determined by its foundation. Very quickly, what does Paul say constitutes this foundation? I just went through the epistle, first epistle of the Corinthians, to find out what he says about Christ, because Christ, of course, is the foundation. He is our rock. From him we receive the grace of God. He is the power of God, our Passover lamb, our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, our justification, our creator, our law, our example, our head, our first fruits, our victory over death. This is the foundation, you see, that Paul lays on which we must stand. A great temptation beguiles today's church. Cool emergence with spiky hair. Believe that holding with firmness I can't have spiky hair, so I'm jealous. <laughs> Believe that holding with firmness to the doctrinal foundation of a theistic, Christological worldview makes Christians obnoxious, angry, and argumentative. Little wonder they say that the world does not like us. As Dan Kimball's book, They Like Jesus But Not the Church, or this reclaiming conference with one subject, Jesus have I loved, Paul have I hated. Are you in your youth 
in your church falling for the temptation to avoid a reasoned, courageous defense of this foundation under the guise of being or wanting to be nice, liked, non-controversial, loving. I don't think we have that choice. Just a few words to bring this together. Paul, following the Old Testament, is co-opting first creational language and reality to inform what is going on now in the new creation. If in the first creation God establishes the totalizing parameters of the physical existence in which we find ourselves so that life can go on, then the new creation has a similar reach. Paul is not engaging in ad hoc or ho-hum theological speculation, but is actually bringing to us the objective, cosmological, ecclesiastical, and eschatological foundation of the new creation of the heavens and the earth, nothing less. We cannot think of anything to do with the present life and its missional ministry of the church without building on this foundation. Calvin understood this, of course. He says this, Paul had executed his duty in this role so faithfully that nothing could be found wanting in his ministry. Hence, whoever may come after can in no way serve the Lord than by making their doctrine correspond with his. Put in another way, in order to be biblically missional relative to fallen human culture, we must first be submissional to the revelation of God as creator and redeemer. Why? Does Paul establish this foundation? To bring the whole counsel of God to needy sinners among the pagans, as he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and founded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.